Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on the program, we have Mike, Michael Faber here to review his own debate. Michael, any words of wisdom, any opening for us? Um, I guess we were talking beforehand, and I, yeah, it probably should have been a little bit tougher, but I thought it was a good debate, and I thought, um, uh, I thought I made some really good points against him. So I guess we'll see. So what is what was your overall impression of the back and forth of of how each of you handled or performed, and what do you imagine is the takeaway from the average audience member who might not be a partisan? Um, I think from his side, he started out asking some questions about you know what I thought about his position, but then started to try and attack me as an open theist rather than really engaging in the debate topic. So I think he got off, when he was doing the cross-ex, he got off topic pretty quick. Uh, my cross-examination, I thought, really got into some points that made him uncomfortable. Um, and so I think your average non-reformed audience member is probably going, oh yeah, I didn't think about that, or oh yeah, that's probably true. And your hardcore reformed people are going, well, he's an open theist, so it doesn't matter anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, so my overall impression is uh, I felt like the debate was missing highs and lows, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Like some, uh, like a leading crescendo to certain points like, oh, you said this, but look at this. And then pressing him on that issue until it results in like some sort of awkward climax, something like that. So it, it's a very even killed debate, which might turn some people off. It might not hold people's attention as as much as uh, more more back and forth debates it wasn't it wasn't a bad debate and each side got their points across but I don't think that uh, judging from the comments that we read together I don't know if it converted anyone from either side to either side that's probably true yeah yeah so um, we are going to go ahead and skip to the cross-examination my impression of Opening statements, you did some very good things. One thing that you did very well that I liked was, since this is a debate about predestination, uh, you went through the Bible and looked at every time that that word is used, and you you gave a list of all the time, all the time, like, these are all the things that are predestined in the Bible. And and the list is not all things. It's, it's a very, a very short list. Mm -hmm. And uh, he didn't seem to ever respond uh, to that point right there. And so I think that was a good illustration and a good object lesson. It could have been pressed more. You could have hammered down on that point at more at certain points. Like this is a debate about if God predestined all things. I gave a list of things God predestined. It's not all things. Something like that. Some sort of some sort of hammer to the audience to to put them on the right mindset to say, hey, look, I said this is is what is this debate's about. Here's what uh, the evidence is on the topic. And then stick to that evidence and rehammer it over and over to get it in their mind. Because in, in oral presentations, repetition matters. Like uh, calling point. calling back things you said previously. So if you get to frame the debate, it's always good because you could always pull back to your framing. And then if you could predict what your opponent's going to do, you could call back to those predictions. Ah, I said he is going to do this. I, I said he's going to quote this verse. Nothing in context means the thing he's saying, and then he did it. 
and voila. It, it, it's rhetorically very good for a debate. Okay. But I I don't think it was a bad debate. I think it was a good information. Uh, I, I want to say information dump, but that sounds uh, that sounds negative. An information transfer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, we both got to be able to sort of put some things out there without really uh, hammering another person really hard. So I thought it was fine. All right, so we are going to start at the cross-examination because I think that's where it becomes a little bit more interesting, where um, it's it's not pre-scripted, right? So each person right. has to think on their feet. Each person has to consider, what did my opponent say, and how am I going to respond to it, and how am I best going to utilize five minutes to make a response to this this fifteen minute? Like like if we are reviewing this, uh, our our time talking is going to be like a factor of five to 10 times longer than what we're reviewing in the debate. You only get five minutes for a 15 minute opening. So it's, yeah. it's very hard. You, it's very limited, very focused. And so the cross-examination is where it all comes to a head. And now we're going to transition to our rebuttal rounds and Michael Borowski, you're back in the seat for your five minute rebuttal. No, 15 minutes is a long time to try to do a rebuttal in five minutes, but, uh, you got it, Michael, and I'll start your time as soon as you begin to speak. So Marlon's a good host. Uh, he seems to have come a long way since he started, and so he's very professional, and uh, he's he stopped interjecting his own views, so that that is that is of note. Now, that was definitely helpful, yeah. Yeah, so I, I do like Marlon. As, uh, he's a very charismatic guy. Yeah. And so he's, he's yep. not bad to... Uh, go on his show to actually have him host the debate, even though he's a hostile witness. He's a hostile platform, we'll say. Right. But you wouldn't know it from the way he hosts it, which is, right. which means he's being very professional about it. So right. appreciated that. All right, thanks. There's a lot to get to, uh, but I'll do my best. I'd like to reread for you Isaiah 46 in verse 9 and 10. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times things which have not been done can we stop it right there God a declares things that have not yet do you notice this isn't a rebuttal he's not he's not answering anything that i've said and i don't think he answers most of what i say at all he just kind of restates his position again so. rhetorically that might be a good move <laughs> and so um in his mindset he says i got these main points and I've stated these main points, and I'm going to start restating these main points. I'm going to use my time to re-emphasize my own points, and maybe the audience is like, uh, they 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 might they might look at his tactics and strategy and say, oh, he, he's making these good points. I don't see these points being responded to, and because of the reiteration, it rhetorically might be effective. It might Over work better, yeah. But but if you go back and you listen to him, it's like, wait a minute, he talked about you know. Uh, Romans and Ephesians and Jeremiah and yeah, so yeah, I was just noticing that he started out by not rebutting anything, but just by restating what I hadn't addressed because I hadn't rebutted his position yet. So, yeah, right, anyway. yeah. So he's he's supposed to be responding to your opening statement, right? And so he's he's trying to frame the opening right here. It's it's not a bad thing to do for his side. Uh, I had a debate specifically on Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, with the Calvinist. And in that debate, I point out things like, it, within the text, 
It states when the beginning is. It states what the end is. It states to whom God's talking. And within the context, God states brand new things that he's never before stated. So this is definitely in Isaiah. It's not an eternal uh, call oh, sure. into the yeah. void. It's yeah. like, I'm declaring to nothing. This eternal yeah. declaration. It's it's weird. When you declare things, you talk to people. And the people yeah. exist. Yeah. But, I think I, he, I don't think he ever really tried to appeal to you know, from eternity past to eternity future out of this particular verse. And maybe that was why that he didn't do that, but it was I an assumption. So yeah, I, he was assuming that, but yeah, he never really stated that. So it really wasn't a, something I could press him on unless I asked him about it first. And I, I just had other things to push him on. So, <laughs> yeah. So like one of the things to do is like uh, in the context of Isaiah, you said, God declares the beginning from the end. Does the context state when specifically that beginning is, yeah, that's true. And, and, the, and then what happens is like they have no idea. They don't know the context of the verses they're quoting. And then so when you say, oh, this verse says he declared it to the people in the beginning. So were the people there in the beginning? Uh, what the beginning of what? Yeah. And then they're all yeah. confused. And then their proof text is disarmed. Yeah. So when, when he assumes that all these things mean his theological claims and he's not challenged on it, the audience feels like... Uh, that's an actual proof text for his side. No. Oh. So that's the danger. Of course, you can't respond to everything. That, yeah. That's part of the problem. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Been done. Is God really surprised and flabbergasted? Does he have no idea what humans are going to be doing after he creates and after he sets things in motion? Yeah. So that that's not the open theist claim. And it's a very weird claim. So it'd be like if you started your rebuttal and he's a Calvinist, God predestines all thing. And you, 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 you say, it's not like God determines every thrust of a child rapist, every cough they make while doing their deed. Uh, at the same time, predestining every single Barney song that's ever played. It's like, it's, it's, it's what he's doing is he's, he's building something that open theists wouldn't claim and normal rational people also wouldn't claim about God. If God does not control everything, then God's just sitting around surprised and shocked by everything. It's like I, I did call I did call him out on that later. That um, just because God isn't controlling everything doesn't mean he isn't guiding history and isn't working actively. Because he tries to create that false dichotomy of either God's controlling all things or he doesn't know what's going to happen and, and we don't know if he can control everything. So yeah, it's yeah. it's not like Michael because Michael Broski. I'm just going to call him Broski, even though it's like Borowski. Yeah. I'm call, calling him Broski. It's not like Broski because he's not omniscient. He just sits around all day, just like what's that? What's that? Being yeah. surprised and shocked by anything. That's not how normal people act. And so right. when they're characterizing. The open theist picture of God like that, it's it's completely disingenuous. Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. It it, it they yeah. have they have to remove themselves from rational standards to make these claims. And I think that was kind of part of the problem with this too, is there was so much to get to that he was, you know, that he was addressed. I really wanted to kind of stay away from open theism because that just pulls the debate onto me and, and gets away from the topic. And so I'm I was, you know, it's it's kind of choices you make during the debate to try to stay on topic or try to respond to what he says. So, right. There was a lot to do, but anyway, go ahead. Where does the scripture really ever say that God just kind of sets things in motion? Is that really what you get from all these passages? Yeah, this, this is this weird either, or either God just sets things in motion or God controls the farting of everyone on earth at all times. Yeah. It's, I, 
I think it's an easier case to make that um, this God predestines all thing is is closer to deism than what open theism could ever be because they basically God predestines, controls, ordains everything that's going to happen and sits back and watches it happen. I and mean, he may he may you know poke in once in a while, but he doesn't have to respond to anything. He doesn't have to do anything. He just kind of watches it go. So. So that's the one thing I would do if I was building an opening statement for this debate, I would frame the debate like this. This debate's about does God predestine all things? You say, yeah, God is intimately involved with the world. God does a lot of things. This debate's, though, about does God predestine all things? If there's even yeah. one thing that God doesn't predestine, then uh, I win the debate or or, or yeah. the, the opposite yep. is, is true. Yeah, I'd say Broski here cannot be pointing to things that God does and then making this broad generalization that, oh, God did this one thing. Therefore, God does everything. That's mm -hmm. a logical fallacy of composition. Yep. It's And so once you frame a debate like that, um, then when he does it, you could point back at that. He said you say, oh, he said that God did these things in Daniel. Well, yeah, I agree. God did those things. But remember back to my opening statement, showing that God is intimately involved in the world doing things doesn't prove his case. Right. It just doesn't do it. It's 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 a logical fallacy. He did the yep. thing that I said he's going to do. Yeah, that would have been a good point to make. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So framing the debate, I think, is very important because it allows those mental callbacks so that the listeners can start seeing the patterns, seeing the associations. And then they could use their own reasoning to to uh, refute his other proof texts. So you don't have to go through every single proof text of his about God doing something if you've set up the principle that God doing something doesn't equal him winning the debate. Yep, for sure. And what we heard my opponent say many, many times is that this doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense whenever you have all these passages that clearly say that God is in control. God has a purpose and a plan and that he's not surprised by anything. He, it's not that he had no idea. And going after this, we have to differentiate. The, the mythical verse where it says God's never surprised by anything. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's um, like, have you read Jeremiah 3, 6, and 7? Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Like, God is surprised by some things in the Bible, yes. So one counterexample should undo his claim. Yep. Primary and secondary means, wherein God being the primary means, wherein he created Adam or uh, came incarnate in Christ. He doesn't like even understand how to make this point. Primary mover. So what were you saying? He doesn't understand how to make this point. It's not means, it's causes. He's not even using the right the right terminology. God's not the primary means. He's the primary cause. I mean, the, the Westminster Confession even admits that man's actions are secondary causes. So, yeah, it's that was that was I, the way he was using that. I was kind of like, how do I do? Do I correct him on well, his own theology? Or yeah. you probably just let it go and go back. Is this debate? Uh, this debate's about does God predestine all things? Yeah, he's taking an affirmative. He's saying God predestined such and such. So, like means and causes, all that's irrelevant. Does God predestine all things? He's right. he's saying yes. Yeah, and so you you don't want to get tangled up the, in their theology. 
that's that's the thing I was I was trying to stay out of is is getting off track and trying to stay on topic. And I may have done that a little bit too and much. And they would love you to that. get off topic because the less you talk about the actual topic at hand, the more you talk about their abstract, yes. uh, like yeah. their uh, arbitrary category creation, the more that they could win the debate because they sound like the intellectual. Oh, I, I made this category here. This is contingent and this is necessary. And yeah. and look at this. This is compatibilism. Like, yeah, this it, all of it's irrelevant to the debate. Does God predestine all things? Yeah. Uh, he says yes. And then we have secondary means where God creates something for a purpose to do something. Okay, so describing something is different than proving that thing is true. So just yep. Calvinists will do this thing where they just describe what their theology is and they think that they made an argument uh no you have to describe what you believe and then why you believe it and why alternatives don't pan out so one of the things he does to you i think he does it in the cross-examination he says your analogy analogies are terrible so we should discard your analogy but what your analogy was doing was showing an alternative way to understand predestination we can wait till we get there but but your analogy is saying you don't have to look at this word like the Calvinist does. So he has to actually, it, it's his obligation to show that the predestined language is being in the way, used in the way that he actually wants it to be used. Yeah. That was actually the first part of my opening because I made the point that you know, American Airlines predestined my flight from Seattle to, to Dallas-Fort Worth. Yeah, his, his, and, his entire so. counterargument was analogies don't actually uh, analogize very well. Yes, that, that was his counterpoint, uh-huh. which it did. But yeah, such as Pharaoh in Romans chapter nine, where he says, I have raised you up that I might show my glory by destroying you. It clearly says that this was God's purpose all along. Not just working with what he had. God himself raised up Pharaoh. Oh, God did something. Therefore, God yeah. predestines all things. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I made this point early, late, earlier. It's like God didn't need to do that from before creation. He could have done that from the candidates that were available to him. It's like, yeah. Oh, so yeah. What, what you need to do, it just, you got to hammer it into the audience. So it's, yeah. it's not like in debates, it's not one time and done. It's repetition, pointing out over and over these violations, creating mental patterns within the audience. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, oh, he did that again. He he just claimed this verse saying God does everything because God did this one thing. It's like he used this verse. God God does everything because God did this one thing. It's a logical fallacy, a fallacy of composition. All we need to do is show one instance of God not doing something and his whole theory falls apart. Yeah. For the sole purpose of showing his might and glory and judgment. With the analogy of cars and the planes and predestining, even though we are finite beings, imagine being an infinite being and you predestine a flight. Oh, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be terrible. Place to another. How many things are happening between where you leave and your destination? How many things happen in between? There's a reason people get in car wrecks, right? There's, there's a reason there's drunk drivers on the road. There's so many other human interactions, so much happening in the natural world, earthquakes, hailstorms, rainy weather, slick roads. There's a lot going on and analogies are not the best argument. All right. So uh, we'll pause it there. Comment. Um, he completely missed the point of 
what I was saying. I mean, he's trying to say, well, you didn't, you, you, you didn't infallibly predestined. Well, I mean, I said that in the original that we don't infallibly predestined. That doesn't mean we don't predestine. So the analogy still holds very nicely. And really, the only point that I was making out of that was that predestination isn't a sort of special divine word. You know, it's not something that only God does. And so I'm trying to demythologize, and I thought it did that fairly well. <laughs> yeah. So, so when these so, things happen in debates, it's actually really funny because I'll grant their point. Uh, so it, yeah. it it's like, oh, sometimes things that are predestined fail. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, Israel was God's elect. Israel was enemies of the gospel. The elect were enemies of the gospel, according to Paul, because sometimes the elect, they, they reject their calling, just like yeah. Jesus states. Or resist calling spirit. Or, yeah. Few are chosen. Yep. Because, yeah, predestined things sometimes fail. Yes, your point is accurate. The analogy is accurate. And yeah. the Bible actually provides scenarios templates standard operating procedures for god in jeremiah 18 god says if if circumstances changes i won't do what i thought i was going to do and i won't do what i said i was going to do based on circumstances if circumstances changes i'm not beholden to my original word because circumstances changed yeah i think i brought that up in the cross but yeah yep uh and whenever it comes to genesis 50 where we read about Joseph's brothers, as I read to you earlier, what they meant for evil. Now, was God simply reacting to what they did, or did that same action, God... In so he's not making the case. None, none of the things he said made the case that God predestines all things. So this this is a this is an interesting point, that Joseph's brothers and God are working to different ends, working the same event. Mm-hmm. which open theists are not going to disagree with, but he's going to just assume that this is some sort of evidence for his side. What was the debate with James White where he tried to use this against uh, William Lane Craig and he uh-huh. tried, to, tried to appeal to this and William Lane Craig just shut him down and humiliated him. He said like, that's evidence for my position. What are you doing? It's like, you can't just quote that for your side. It's that's my position. What? <laughs> I, this, I kind of call this sort of, um, preemptive proof texting trying to take something out of my hands in case i did try to use it to try and cast it for his side first so well granted the calvinists will probably uh, probably allude to joseph's brothers first because it's one of their key examples of trying to find a compatibilist text yes Look, look the brothers are doing something but god's using the same events to different ends uh therefore free will can be true while god's in control so so I, I I don't necessarily think it's preemptive, but uh, I think it's a bad proof text for oh for sure yeah God predestining all things that it doesn't say what He wants it to say that's for sure yes intended it for good that evil which the brothers had meant or intended God intended that same thing for good and the same with uh, Acts chapter four whenever it comes to the crucifixion of Christ. This wasn't just happenstance that things happened to line up. God set things in motion and, and Jesus was poking the bear. What if it didn't work? Is he just trying to trying to do it and hoping that it would happen? What would happen if Jesus died a natural death because everybody ignored him? I can pause it right or there. Was it predestined? It's it's almost as though God doesn't know their hearts and doesn't know their intentions and their minds and their history and 
this this is the thing I don't get is I thought I made it fairly clear that Jesus was intentionally trying to bring this about by interacting them with in such a way that they were going to kill him. God knew, you know, a year beforehand they were planning to try to kill him. So yeah. I mean, what is it's what these guys are gonna just sort of magically change their mind because Jesus isn't gonna do anything to to dissuade them of their their fears. So yeah, so what I do rhetorically that's very effective, uh, yeah, good to trigger them, is uh, I go like, yeah, Jesus didn't think that the crucifixion was fated. He prays in the garden to forego it, yep. and uh, he prefaces uh, his prayer with this appeal to God's will, not his being done, because he knew that God might respond and actually fulfill his prayer. And then also in the garden, he says a bunch of angels, a legion of angels could come save me. Jesus, not me. It's not me that thinks that the cruci the crucifixion can be foregone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's Jesus. And yeah. uh, they don't know what to do with that. Then they, they have to hem and haw. And then if they actually want to respond to that, it's going to take them like 20 minutes to try to explain some weird nuanced position that doesn't make any sense. And so yeah. it'll yeah. be a great time sink if they want to respond to that point. So rhetorically, that's the correct move. It's not me that thinks that the cross can be foregone. It's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> According to God's purpose. And between Genesis 3, where God... Yeah, Telker writes, doesn't it say that if the demons had known what they were doing, they wouldn't have killed Jesus, so the demons had free will. Yeah, often it's like, yeah, yeah. for God to like raise up Pharaoh and to get him to do these things and manip manipulate him into these situations, you don't have to manipulate into situations people who don't have their own volition free will you only do that to people who who uh have free will and you have to sometimes coerce them uh, you grab jonah put him in a big whale threaten his life uh make make uh john the baptist zachariah make him mute until he names his son you only use coercion against people without free will you don't you don't use it against people with free will mm -hmm. yeah for sure said this is what's going to happen. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. How many things between then and the crucifixion of Christ? How many human free will actions had to take place in between where God could guarantee it at the right time where he predicted in Daniel when and how these things would happen? Yeah, all right. That's that's such a I mean, I made this argument, I think I made this point a couple of times that if you think God has to control everything between Genesis three and the crucifixion in order for the crucifixion to happen, that's a really small view of God. I mean, that's just, you know, think about that for a minute. You're saying that God can't bring about these things unless, you know, unless they're they're controlled. I mean, that's the only way I can put it is that God has to sovereignly control and create one timeline and everything. It's like house i mean even like i make this and i didn't make this analogy i probably could have but um you've got it's basically a difference between a general on the battlefield who's fighting a real enemy and doesn't control their actions and wins every time versus a boy who has plastic soldiers that he's controlling both sides and wins every time and the calvinist is the boy with the plastic soldiers you know yeah when i was a kid i went to my friend's house and we'd play like a little army man and he would go out of his way to make the good guys win each time. And then he went to his mom and he bragged. He's like, we played like three times and the good guys won every single time. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, you forced it to happen. It wasn't it wasn't organic. There's nothing to brag about there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, Same it's, thing actually, here. it's actually pretty funny. On my podcast, uh, I, I use the example like, I know I'm going to go to work tomorrow. 
every time I've said that, it's actually occurred, despite all the contingencies, all the car crashes, all the free will actions of a million people that I have no familiarity with. It's happened each and every single time. And so it's not like it takes a super genius to be able to predict and know and effectually cause future events. I do it all the time. He does it all the time. He's not in this perpetual state of like, oh, nothing I, I do, I, can, I can't know anything about the future. It all might collapse at any moment. We don't operate in that world. We operate in a normal, rational world where people can make decisions to do things in the future and then actually accomplish their will. And then sometimes, sometimes those things don't occur even to God. And those, those are the times that are of interest. It's not interesting when, when God says he's going to do something and then gets it accomplished. It's it, that's that's not of interest in the Bible because yeah that's the default. It's interesting when he wants to do something and then cannot accomplish accomplish it. He, his will was for the lawyers to be baptized, the, the scribes, and they resisted his will. John the Baptist says, "Hey, all of you guys can rebel against God. God could still fulfill his plan and kill you all. He can make new children of Abraham from these rocks. God can re respond to circumstances to get his actions fulfilled." God is innovative and creative. And when he's saying these things, what he's saying is that God is not innovative. God is not creative. God is not powerful. For sure. Yeah. That's that's his view of God. Yep. Either God controls everything or God is weaker than Broski here. Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense unless God is actually guiding history and not just pushing things in motion, hoping, hoping they will work. Yeah, yes, I'll grant that. God is guiding history. Granted. Yeah. I, I made that point later that the, the dichotomy really isn't either God is totally out of control or God is completely in control. The, the dichotomy is God controls all things or God works and guides history without having to control all things. So one rhetorical thing you could do is say, I'll grant for sake of the argument that God predestines all things except for one thing. And then just, just pick the one thing randomly. Maybe yeah. the one thing in the Bible that doesn't occur. And yeah. uh, then then he, he won't know what to do with that. Like all yeah. his arguments, it's like, I've already granted that God predestines all things except for this one thing. Um, he won't know. It's, it's like he won't have any responses left because he's he's programmed to argue against a straw man that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Well, and I thought that was the, I thought the points were made fairly well out of Jeremiah three and 19 and 32, you know, these things didn't enter God's mind and um, God thought something was going to happen and it didn't. So I don't know. So one follow up to do, because you do cross examine him and you say, Oh, what does this mean? And then he says, Oh, it's just condescending to us. One thing to do is, what would the text have to say specifically to make you think that God uh, changed his mind here? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, and then it, it's like almost like a mental tailspin because they realize how bad that looks to the audience. Him saying that no matter what the Bible says, um, he's not going to believe. Yeah, yeah it's never going to be enough. It's not going to be it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a good one. Finally. Uh, whenever it comes to God having regret or repentance, I'd like to just read from 1 Samuel 15 and verse 29. And also the glory of Israel, that is God, will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. So Idol Killer here in the comments, yeah, he says repeating talking points does not address the defeater's 
that Faber brought. And so mm -hmm. he's he's doing some of the heavy lifting for you, trying to to address the audience and get them thinking about what points were made, what responses were made, do those responses make sense? And so he's he's being a very good wingman for you over in the comments, yeah. bolstering your case. Warren is very good at that. And so uh, he just he just made the argument a common uh, God is not a man that he will lie or repent. Will Duffy points out he he found the passage. God is not a man that he's going to come in wrath. God comes in wrath all the time, right? Yeah. Um, it's contextually limited to the thing that they're talking about in the specific context. Uh, within the context of First Samuel fifteen, which there's two times that it says, I don't know if he made the reference which one he's which one he's quoting. In one reference, they're quoting a false prophet talking about God, and in the other reference, they're talking they're they're quoting Samuel talking about God. Whereas God, within the very context, says that God repents. And then the narrator does later at the end end of the chapter yeah. as God repents. I think that's the one where um, Samuel is basically telling Saul, well, sorry, God doesn't respond just because you you know cry and throw a hissy fit. So, yeah. But, but here's the thing. Although he says that, sometimes God does. Uh, like, for oh, example, yeah. within within the cycle of apostasy that we see, within Joshua and Judges, um, God says, I'm not going to hear you anymore. I'm not going to listen to your prayers anymore. And then what happens? They cry out and then God changes his mind again because God's yep. merciful. So sometimes it's like God will say these things like, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to listen to you. But then it instantly reverses course because of their pleading. And oh, so, yeah. Yep. so uh, uh, Saul should not have given up hope Saul should have kept on pleading. Saul should have kept on fighting. It could have worked. It, it could have worked because oh, it right. often does in the Bible. Yep. And so it, it's not like it's not like a Samuel's talking metaphysics. Like uh, God has this property where, like, uh, <laughs> there's, yeah. like repentance is set to negative, and nowhere, no how can he repent? And that's 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 just not what's happening in the text. It's it's specific to that circumstance that Saul's response was not something that was appropriate and he's basically saying not with that attitude he's not gonna yeah and yeah. and even that's reversible and yep. so it, it's, it it's so funny we have to remember that the scriptures are written so the human beings can actually understand what's happening whenever god relents or changes direction it's not him changing it's things actually operating the way they were meant to like with Moses, like with the people of Israel. <laughs> Whenever God repents or changes, it's just it's just the normal course. That yeah. things that's so that's I, one I, thing. Oh, go ahead. I would have needed twenty minutes to cover his opening statement and this to to respond right. to all this stuff, and that's, I just I just did not have the space. And I thought, well, I'm going to stay on topic, and um, you know, kind of let him appeal to everything else. But if I would have had time, I would have been like, um, well. How is it that you can understand, but they can't? So de debates are all about mental shortcuts. And so yeah. one thing I've done in my debates is say, hey, listen, he just listed off like 15 different verses. If we go to one of those verses and look at it and the context doesn't support what he's trying to say that that verse means, then we could dismiss all those verses. And it, rhetorically, that's effective. And then if you get a chance to have them pick the verse that you look at, and look at the context to see if it supports their claim. That's even more effective because yeah. presumably they're going to pick their best proof text. And so, um, 
so that way you could strike a whole bunch of his proof texts all at once. Yeah, that's yeah. I, the thing is that all of this stuff, I mean, like I said, two thirds, well, actually, all of his reply did not respond to most of what I said. The only thing he really responded to was my predestination with the airplane analogy. The rest of it has been, uh, well, this is my position. And by the way, he's an open theist. Yeah. So I did oh. want to talk about analogies and how analogies function. Analogies are not arguments. And so a right. lot of people like pretend like if they just give an analogy, oh, this is like this situation. And so then then they pretend like that that's an accurate depiction of what they're yep. trying to explain. Mm -hmm. Analogies help open conceptual options mm -hmm. for for texts. Yep. Like like you could you can analogize that predestination with the plane, but it could be sometimes that predestination language is used in a more Nostradamus, uh, may, maybe a Greek sense when things are faded. Sometimes it's used like that, but but there are other options that are open and available. And sometimes the predestination language is just used for just normal things. Like within Clement, one example I like to use is when Clement talks about who Jesus specified by uh, love your uh, blood relation or whatever, or will love your neighbor. And the Pharisees predestined blood relation. That doesn't mean that they're they're like foretelling the future. And that means at a previous point of time, the time and context when they're interacting with Jesus, that's what they told Jesus. So they predestined. That means at a prior point of time, the time when they're talking to Jesus, they specified the destined an answer. Yeah. And so uh, words have flexibility. Words words have different options. An analogy opens the conceptual landscape of options. He then, it's it's incumbent on him to prove that his reading of predestination uh, by the context of the verses quoted means what he wants that word to mean. It's not incumbent on you anymore. Uh, yep. you, you've done you've done your due diligence. Yeah. It happened so that Christ could come and save his elect people. That's my time. Thank you. All right, thank you for that rebuttal. All right, Michael Faber, you are in the seat again for your five-minute rebuttal, and I'll start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Yes, uh, Seth writes, if Scripture protects Christ's death, Psalms 22, 11, 16, Isaiah 53, 9, and Jesus thought a, a legitimate option not to be crucified, would then the prophecies have failed and the Scripture be incomplete? And so my my initial response is uh, none of those none of those Scriptures are actual prophecies. They're they're what they're 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 like symbolic prophecies. They're they're things that you look back on in retrospect and point to the truth of the crucifixion, but them in themselves aren't explicit references to Jesus. Isaiah 53 is probably the best case, and probably that's one to talk through with someone at some point in which they claim that's a prophecy of Jesus, but it's uh, the hymn in question. It looks like it's the suffering servant looks like it's Israel itself in that context. But yes, prophecies can fail and they do fail in the Bible. Uh, it, that sometimes prophecies overwhelmingly are meant to fail. God tells people his intentions at a particular point of time. And hopefully the people are going to repent and reform themselves. And uh, then God won't have to fulfill that prophecy. Prophecies are generally meant to fail. And that's not a big deal in the Bible. 
and, and prophecies fail for other reasons. God says, if the people change, I, I promise blessings. If the people change, uh, they're going to get curses instead because I'm not going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm not going to do what I thought I was going to do. And, and you understand, we understand as normal, rational people that when circumstances change, the, the prophecies, the promises, they also might not hold up. So what are your thoughts? Um, I, I wouldn't have pointed to those uh, particular verses to say that they predict Christ's death. You're right. Isaiah 53 is a better one than Psalm 22. Um, I think the prophecy that probably you would most refer to would be Jeremiah 31, where God promises a new covenant. And this was the uh, means by which the new covenant was going to be brought about. <clears throat> but I, I also think that the covenant could be brought about, brought about through other means as well. Right. So in Elsa's book, Did God Know? Um, he, he writes a hypothetical, like, let's pretend Israel turned and repented and started worshiping God. Uh, presumably, Jesus could go sacrificially to the altar, right? The cross is not an altar, right? The, the cross is a Roman form of execution. Uh, conceivably, Jesus could have willingly went to an altar to be sacrificed in the temple like a normal sacrifice to be the sacrifice for all. Yeah, in theory, but the you got to remember Jesus is is preaching and prophecies and coming to Israel as a prophet, specifically so they won't turn. I mean, it's Jesus' intention that they not turn to him, and that's why he he preaches and, as I said during the debate, uh, somewhat jokingly poke the bear. Um, was for the what the intention was for them to. Uh, become upset enough with him so that they would crucify him. So, hey, he he did not like the poking the bear. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know why he didn't. I, it's, it's just, I mean, if if you read the Gospels at all, you know you can see that this is the case. Jesus is intentionally interacting with the Pharisees in such a way to to make them angry with him and to to basically threaten their their political and theological power. So, yeah, it's yeah. I, all right. I, I think that, I think it was Jesus' intent to go to the cross. I think the prayer indicates that it wasn't an absolute necessity but by the same token it was it was the plan and i, I think jesus says you know if there's any other way and but jesus says but i know this is the plan and this is the way so he was kind of mandatory yeah. that so way. now we're going to get to your five minutes uh, you get to <laughs> criticize and critique yourself and then add comments and thoughts about uh how you performed and so this this will be interesting you get to critique yourself in live stream, it's like there there used to be that show where they have like the internet redos for the people who yeah. fail. Yeah. Not that you failed. I'm not saying you failed. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. The same concept. Okay. Um, got a lot of scriptures to go through and a few other things. So going quickly, Ephesians 1.11. Um, you said, uh, let me get to it here. Be pressing the plan. Uh, I didn't have it out fast. I was like, uh, uh, God is working all th- yeah, I was, so I should have been prepared for that one. I had it in my notes and I just couldn't find it. And I was like, uh, and I kind of panicked. So, yeah, yeah, it lost 13 seconds. And so, yep. uh, not not terrible, but uh, just yeah. things. Okay, number one, working uh, is uh, present tense, it's not past tense. So, God hasn't worked all things, the process, process of working all things. And the sentence doesn't end at the end of verse 11, he's working all things. And according to this, so that we who were the first to place our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So God is working all things within the within the context of 
so that we who are first to put our hope in Christ might be praised of his glory. Okay, he's talking about being predestined to uh, receive an inheritance. Okay, so what is your strategy with opening this as your rebuttal? What, what are you doing here? Um, why is this being prioritized over anything else? Any of your other options? Uh, well, I'm going through, he basically whipped through a bunch of scripture and said, all of this says predestination. And so my my strategy going in was, okay, I'm going to go through each one of these verses and show how it doesn't say predestination of all things. And that most of these things don't say predestination at all. And he's, he's just basically interpreting them to mean that. But like when we get to um, Psalm 115, God does as he pleases. Well, what if God is pleased to create creatures with free will and and have an open future? Then that's what God does. And I actually use them against him, I think, later too. But my my initial strategy was, okay, his this is 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 it biblical to say that God does all things? Well, let's go through the Bible and, and see what he claims is true, trying to be a good Berean here. So, so. did did you preface that? Because I, I might have missed it. I, I don't know if that was prefaced anywhere. I don't I don't think I said that quite ex that explicitly. I said we've got a lot of scripture, a lot of scripture to go through here. So let's go through his proof text and see and, what we and then you yeah. started reading. So my problem yeah. there, uh, stylistically, is you didn't frame what was going to happen. There wasn't uh, a good frame there. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's, it's not like uh, he, he made a lot of claims about God uh, controlling everything, but the Bible just doesn't talk like that. We can look at some of their pro common proof texts. I'll take you through a couple of them. You'll see that the verses, when, when you read them, they just they just don't result in God predestining all things. And then start reading because then you set expectations. When you just start reading a verse, um, people might tune out because it's like, why are we reading this verse? What am I looking for in this verse? What's going on? Uh, they might, they not, if they're not directed, it might yeah, fall I, flat. I haven't, I haven't connected it to him. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. We're not talking about working all things everywhere, all throughout the world. Uh, Acts 427. I'm going to try to put this one on like a faster speed so that there's a voice difference between you and the video. And we'll see if that can't differentiate so that we go. we'll try that. Money already covered uh, in the sense that God predestined in the sense that he created in, in an analogy of creating a police thing. He set up the Jews to do what the Jews do. He doesn't need to control everything that the Jews are doing up to that process because God knows what's going on in the hearts and minds of, of all of these people. He knows how they're going to react to particular situations. And the Jews were set up as a group to crucify Christ. Okay, this does not need to be meticulously controlled. The only thing that needs to be predestined is for Jesus to be handed over to them while they're ready to kill him. Okay. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about that. So how much time is spent versus what's the projected payout to the audience on this point? It could have been pretty easy for you to say, yeah, I agree with him that God controls history. I, I agree with him that God is intimately involved. I agree with him that God planned the crucifixion of Jesus. I agree with him that uh, God used all these forces, Pontius Pilate and the Jews. It's like, that's not at contention here. What we're talking about, does God predestine all things? It's like, can God not make plans unless he predestines all things? Something like that would have been very easy just to widely, fastly dismiss large swaths of his proof text. Definitely would have been faster. That's for sure. And so it's it's not you you could just grant points and like a lot of people in debates they don't think that you it, it doesn't dawn on them that even if you don't agree with something you could just grant points for the sake of the debate if that point's irrelevant or even if the point helps your case just grant the point and move on. Yeah, I I think I'm trying to make more of a 
a trying to be negative and positive at the same time. So not just say, well, I'll grant you most of this, and but we, you know, this we little thing. It's like, no, let, I want to, I want to do the proper exegesis. And maybe that's my problem is that I, I'm trying to make too much of a positive case for. Yeah. The but the problem is that you have five minutes and you've just used a minute and a half. Yep. Well, I've used, I've, but I've hit his two biggest proof texts too. So, mm -hmm. but does the audience know that these are his two biggest proof texts? That That's, that's the problem. Is it, if I'd have spent 10 seconds, just framing it and say, let's go through his proof text and see if they say what he thinks he says, I probably would have said yeah, it. It's like, he gave yeah. two major proof texts. Let's take a look at them. His case yep. hinges on these proof texts. If they don't say what he's claiming, I know it's, God doesn't, it, it doesn't prove that God predestines all things. Yep. Something like that. Yep. Okay. Genesis 15, 50, 20 is actually an interesting case. The, uh, uh, what the brothers intended for God, God intended um, for evil, what the brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. The, the brothers are in the, even in this verse are the ones that intended first. God looked at what they intended to do and said, ah, I'm going to take what they've just intended to do. And I'm going to use that to bring about good. Okay. God is responding to what the brothers have done. And that's clearly what the Genesis 20, 50, 20 story is saying. Uh, Daniel 4, 35, God does according to his will. I agree that God does according to his will, but this does not mean meticulous control. It does not mean predestination of all things. If it's God's will for, to create creatures who have free will that he does not control, then God does that. Okay. God using the Assyrian. Yeah. So I was just reading, um, it was yesterday. I was reading the book of Enoch and the book of Enoch talks about how God does all things and controls all things. Um, it's very detailed about it, but then it has a, this, it has a scene where where uh, Enoch goes to this pit, and it's like there, there's these fiery stars in the pit, and he asks the angels, he's like, "Who are these?" It's like these are the people that disobeyed God. Uh, God decrees all things, you know, and so then they they violated that decree, and they didn't do what God decreed for them to do, and so <laughs> God God got angry and he punished them. That, that's how, that's how controlling things works. That's how yeah. God controls all things. Through active measures and punishments to make th make sure things go God's way, it's like Jonah doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh. Let's go grab him with a big big fish and then like threaten his life and force him to do it. That's yeah. how God is involved with the world. It's yeah. not this uh, eternal like like uh, God's gonna make uh, me cough like on the podcast. <laughs> God's like I gotta make that. That's that's just not it's not what's happening. It's, not a thing. Yeah. It's so funny. It's again, God doesn't need to meticulously control the Assyrians uh, in order to bring it about. He, he just sets them up to do what they're going to do. And so I always point out with the Assyrians, like, yeah, God used the Assyrians. But guess what? The Assyrians overstepped their bounds. And so they punished Israel more than God wanted them to. And so then God punishes them in turn for their overpunishment. And so that that's that's an interesting element of this example that that's often ignored is that they transgressed what God wanted in his use of the Assyrians. Yeah. And it's like, I don't think I've ever heard like a response to that. I've, I've never part. understood. I've honestly, I've never understood Calvinists using this because this is a clear refutation of their, um, their position because yeah, God works somehow to cause the Assyrians to attack Israel. But then they, like you said, they cross bounds. It's like, well, did God predestine them to, cross these bounds because then god's the one that's causing it and he's crossed his own bounds that doesn't make any sense yeah it's it's so, weird too because like the text says god whistled for them like god god lured them there if you're yeah. predestining all things you don't have to lure people places that, that's, that's true it, it's it like the, the, the biblical authors were not thinking in terms of fatalism they're not thinking in terms no. of predestination of all things like Things need practical mechanics in order to function. 
Yeah. Like it's, and I can hear all the Calvinists out there. So means, means God uses means. It's like, okay, but the means really don't mean anything. Why would, why would God punish something? God punish something, somebody for something that he predestined for them to do, unless he just felt like punishing them and or making them do it and the punishing for what he made them do. It's, it doesn't, yeah, it's like instead of like having Jonah run away and then be swallowed, you could have just made him go to the place of the. You could have skipped all that. All all yep. that was superfluous. But but then again, everything's superfluous in their system. Nothing matters. It's yeah, yep. With um Isaiah forty one and forty six, God declares the end, um, but there says nothing about the middle. In fact, Isaiah forty six nine says declaring the end from the beginning. Okay, God's declaring the end from the beginning. It doesn't say I predestined the entire center. Doesn't say he's predestined. In fact, God. Uh, good points. Uh, what I would always do is point out in context. God tells us when the beginning is, and it's not timeless eternity. Yeah. God yeah. tells us when the end is, and then God declares new things that have never been declared. Yep. Yeah. So... My my point here is that, and you'll you'll hear this next is that God is accomplishing. It's not like he has accomplished. He's in the process or will accomplish. Right. And the text so... in question says that explicitly. It says, "I yeah. said it, and then I do it." Yep. within isaiah that's that's what the verses say it's like that's, that's yeah. 10 and 11 yeah or yes. 9 and 10 yeah god does what he says what's also funny about uh or um, since i'm on the enoch mindset um the angels come to god within enoch and they petition the the prayers of the people you know like jesus says that the children have guardian angels that are always in front of the face of the god advocating for them and then Paul says that uh, there's only one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Jesus Christ. So there's mediators to God. And it's a very Old Testament concept that the angels will advocate in front of God. But within Enoch, not only do the angels advocate to God, but the Isaiah language of God needs no counselors is also involved. It's in the same context. So the Calvinist idea is since God needs no counselor, that no one could give God input that God considers. That's not what that verse means. It means that no one's teaching God to be moral or righteous or just. You yeah. could still petition him and offer evidence and arguments and he'll listen and consider and then perhaps act on that. Uh, but no one's no one's framing his moral set, right? That yeah. That's what that, that verse means. Not that 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 was discussed in your debate, but it, it is an interesting aspect of uh, it is. Yep. Mm -hmm. It says, I will accomplish. That means that God is actively bringing about what he has declared. Okay, to, to argue, well, there's lots and lots of free wills running around. Well, that just makes it, that means you have a really small view of God. If you say God can't accomplish something without controlling everything first, it just does not work that way. Okay, the, the, the Bible is replete with examples. Like I read two of them that says uh, these things happen that did not enter my mind. Okay, God can't predestine what enters his mind or what doesn't enter his mind. So, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a. Uh, so I would, I would take a little bit of issue with your use of these Jeremiah passages. Uh, the clause, it never entered my mind, might be modifying, commanding them to sacrifice the children rather than the fact that they would sacrifice their children. Does that make sense? That what never entered God's mind was to command child sacrifice rather than what never entered God's mind would be that Israel would child sacrifice. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a possibility, yeah, but it's it still, it, to that, but it, it still refutes the idea that God predestines all things because if God predestines all things, then God does command child sacrifice and God's saying it's never entered my mind to command child sacrifice. That wasn't a thing that I had for you guys. Stop killing your children. 
Yeah. Or it, it's, it's horrific. Yeah, other, or that, that um, God is saying, I would never command this, but he predestined it. It's like, uh, how does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's how I'd use the Jeremiah verses okay. that God, God never, it never entered his mind to command these things. Yet you say God predestines all things. And yeah. then, then, then they have to square it. Yep. And how that they'll do that is they'll try to do that uh, arbitrary category creation. Like, mm-hmm. oh man, so he has a prescriptive will and, and a, a descriptive yeah. will. And so sometimes God will command us to do things that he secretly doesn't want us to do because that's just, yeah, mm-hmm. it creates this weird, this weird, uh, it, arbitrary but, but, category. Yeah. Yeah. But then the audience gets to see them do it. And so that's funny. Yeah. Uh, it, it's obvious from the other scriptures and the ones that you're citing don't say what it says. Um, Proverbs 16 and 19. We have to understand that Proverbs are, are wisdom literature. They're intended to give people guidance for living. So when the Lord directs his steps, the author is telling people, let God direct your steps. When he says, um, made, the e- uh, made the evil for the day of judgment, he's telling them, avoid the day of judgment. Don't do evil. Okay, Psalm 33, 9, God's counsel stands. Okay, if God's counsel is to create people that have free will. Yeah, I, th- I think you're doing well here, explaining that Proverbs are Proverbs. One thing I did to Matt Slick on this verse is that I, I read a different translation of God creates all things for its purpose. Uh, there, there's an alternative translation that says uh, God brings all things to the proper end, even the wicked for the day of judgment. And I asked Matt Slick, I said, what makes your translation that you're basing your entire argument off of, what makes your translation correct and this translation wrong? And he didn't have an answer. Is that, yeah, he, exactly. does, he doesn't know Hebrew, so he doesn't have Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And yeah. he, he doesn't have, it, it's, his proof text has to mean what he claims in order for him to have a point. And so he doesn't know how to respond to alternative takes on the same proof text. Yeah, well, he doesn't control, then that counsel stands. Psalm 115.3, God does what he pleases. If God is pleased to create creatures that have free will that he doesn't control, then, then God does what he pleases. Same thing with Psalm 135.6. Uh, Revelation, uh, Revelation. So Seth writes, is prescriptive and descriptive will anywhere supported in the Bible or does something Calvinists create to avoid contradictions? And so what I would say is that uh, we all face trade-offs right? It's like, I, I like eating ice cream. I want to eat ice cream all day, every day, but guess what? There's a trade-off. Uh, I will get fat. And so God wants to save everyone, but not at the expense of putting Hillary Clinton in heaven, right? You, you face trade-offs. And so you don't always get what you want. You have conflicting wills. Uh, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. You have even within the same person, conflicting wills, conflicting values. You, you just can't get everything that you want at all times. It just doesn't work like that. And so what Calvinists will do is that they will take conflicting priorities in God and say, since God wants one thing and it doesn't happen and God always gets what he wills, there has to be a secret will that's below this and then a declared will, which doesn't happen. And they say, God always gets what he wills. And so his his prescriptive will just doesn't, doesn't attain. But the reality of situation is you can't get everything there. There's you face trade-offs in life. And even you and I, it's not like our wills being violated. If uh, it's like, I always want to be playing video games. It's not like my wills being violated by, by recording this right now, because I have conflicting desires. I also have a desire to get out information and uh, talk about things, right? Favor thoughts. 
Um, the I think the best sort of way that Calvinists kind of try to defend this is with Israel, because God intentionally hardens Israel, even though he wants for them to respond and, and says so uh, during the uh, while during while he's here on earth. And so there is a sense in which um, God's sort of prescribed will for Israel's respond to me, but yet he's acting in a way such that they won't because he needs to be crucified. And but that isn't something that um, is sort of from the beginning of the world, or this is the way everything operates. That you know, man's sin puts God in a position of having to do things um, that he might not normally want to do, like harden Israel, in order to redeem all of mankind. And so the the attempt to sort of take the, and this is a error of composition, take this specific example and say this is the way God works in every situation, everywhere is is not a valid. It's not a valid argument. Yeah, so. exactly. Jesus had the will not to be crucified, not my will, but yours be yeah. done. But he also had a will that his father's will be, he had, he had, he had a conflict that he needed to resolve yep. and uh, he let uh, his father resolve that. That's, that's another good example. Yeah. 13 and 70 is actually an interesting thing because the written there is in the perfect form. Uh, and I take that as an ingressive uh, perfect such that the, uh, the names being written in the book of life uh, began to be written from the foundation of the world. That's when the writing began. And so the writing continues on as people believe their names get written into the book. So you do a good thing here. Uh, you point to the blood being shed from the foundation of the world, which just means since the world was created until now, and you summarize that. So I, I, th I think this is a very good point that a lot of people don't understand or they can't conceptualize or they haven't thought about that you, that you point out. I don't know if it was the best place for it or if a cross X might be a better place. But uh, I do like this part. Book of Life. And even David talks about his name uh, not being blotted out uh, from the Book of Life as well. <clears throat> as for Pharaoh, yes, God did raise up Pharaoh. But God doesn't need to meticulously control all things for Pharaoh to be put in the position that he was in. It's simply none of these things require that God meticulously control or predestine everything before him to bring about his purpose. This, this is simply not a, not a requirement from any of the verses that have been cited. Yeah. So that's good. That, that's the debate resolution. You said none of his evidence proves what he's trying to prove. That's what needs to be hammered, hammered, hammered every every single time you can. Like like in, a, in question and answers follow up, when he's trying to ask about his specific verses, you could end with that. Yeah, so that none of nothing you're offering proves that God predestines all things. Something like that. Yeah. Repetition. And I believe that's the end of my time. Oh, well, you had about seven seconds left, man. So we got one more word in there. Oh. You're good. You're good. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for the opening statements and the rebuttal. So now we're going to transition to the cross-examination. Once again, it'll be 30 minutes total, 15 minutes each to lead with questions. The only time I will interrupt is if I feel the, the questioning and the answering of the questions will are very way off into La La Land and not on the topic. And if I hear any ad hominems, disrespectful conversation between you two, we do not want to make this personal. Let's deal with the biblical text of the topic. All right. That said, Michael, you're up first for your 15-minute cross-ex of Michael Faber. And you got it. All right, Mr. Faber. Um, did God have a purpose in creation? And if so, what was that purpose? Uh, yes, uh, we find the purpose for creation actually in the creation story. Uh, I do like how you handled this question. It's brilliant because... Uh, uh, you give him the answer, and then he he goes back and tries to ask the same question, and you point back to the same answer again, and it it is is kind of almost a little bit humiliating for him that he wasn't he wasn't expecting the answer. Uh, yeah. What, one debate strategy is never never ask a question that you don't know 
the how the other person is going to answer mm-hmm. because guess what you're 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 just going to get thrown for a loop and made to look a little bit silly and th- this that's what happens in this question um god says i'm going to create man uh, in my image and in my image that they are going to be uh given dominion over the earth and they are to be fruitful and multiply uh, we can see this uh theologians call this the creative mandate uh, we see that in genesis 2:19 where god brings the animals before Adam to see what Adam would call them. This is sort of a pattern of uh, God looking to see what we are going to do with creation. Uh, that's God is, is uh, looking for our response to what he has presented to us. So from that moment of creation prior to the fall, was the cross and the sacrifice of Christ in God's mind was a part of the plan at that point? It's part of the contingency plan, yes, um, in, in a general sense. Um, I would not say that God knew that on April 15th. He's not expecting these answers. Uh, AD 33 at 12.03 and 46 seconds that the first nail would be driven. Uh, I don't think it's it's not down to that specific kind of time. I think there, God knew that in the future, if man sinned, that uh, Christ's death would be necessary. Yes, he knew that that was a, a going, to, uh, going to be a requirement. So would you describe the plan of the cross, a plan B or a backup plan, just in case things would go awry? I wouldn't call it plan B. Um, it's just a, it's a contingency. Contingency based on what exactly? Like whether man, whether man's not do what God had, sorry, what God yeah, had what, not what, planned on right. doing that he would have not foreseen what was. Well, one thing I would do is if he starts, uh, we talk, start talking contingency plans and say, God has contingency plans within the Bible. In Exodus uh, 4, uh, God is is talking to Moses and giving him if then else with uh, with uh, subset yeah. questions. What's going to happen if this happens? If that doesn't happen, then do this. There's cascading contingency plans within the Bible. It's, it's not like it's outside of the scope of God to have cascading contingency plans. Yeah. And so what he's trying to do here is rhetorically, he's trying to get a soundbite from you that says, like the cross is not necessary or something like that, which he then could use as like a gotcha point. It, it has nothing to do with the debate. The well, debate's about, does God predestine all things? He wants a soundbite. That's what he's fishing for here. Uh, to me, it feels like the debate was over already and that now he's just trying to find some way to discredit me. And um, you know, I maybe a little bit of disappointing on Marlon's part for not calling him out on that because he said no ad hominems but he's basically building an ad hominem case here so. right it's it's like a stealth ad hominem he already did that a little bit where he started characterizing your view as god being jittery just surprised at everything right it's like that that's that's a stealth ad hominem yep. right and so marlon would probably shut down the debate if your entire opening round is uh like mocking the notion of god controlling all child rapists and and everything that happens on epstein island and all sorts of silly wackiness that goes on in the world if your entire opening was that marlin might have shut down the entire debate but uh michael is friendly with with the administrator and so he he gets to do it and he gets to do it in a way that it's not super obvious what one thing calvinists will do is they'll do this thing where they'll demean you they'll mock you and if you give them a little bit of pushback they're like oh no you're so mean to me we need to be nice i thought you were a christian i, I would be i'll pray for you like I, I get involved in political debates enough and know that that's the case and i know how to avoid that for the most part so right it's 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 like uh like a <laughs> like a victimhood complex the, the bully is is the actual the victim right yep 
but uh, he's he's not. None of this has any relevance to one thing you could point out when you answer. Not that you have to, but you could say, well, no matter what my answer is, that doesn't prove that God predestines all things. I'll yeah. answer it, but that's not on topic of the debate. Yeah. And then if you start doing that, then the audience kind of kind of gets Picks up on it. Yeah, they'll see what he's doing going to happen and therefore he had to have kind of a backup plan just in case it's not again it's not a backup plan because the 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 possibility existed that adam would sin or adam would not sin and so whichever happened god god already knew what his response was going to be so it was a just in case no it's a it's it's an either or adam sins adam doesn't sin both are our plan a if you will <laughs> but god knew the cross might be necessary he doesn't know what to do with this it's so funny yeah. He's, he's just digging and wasting his time uh so um it would behoove him at this point to just move on to his next question because he's not going to get his soundbite that he's looking for that he's digging for um but he's going to start keep digging and it just just not worth his time i've, I've been through this it's not my first rodeo <laughs> necessary yes okay um so was god ignorant of all of human history he knew what was going to happen whenever he created Adam and had something kind of planned, but how could he know the end then if he didn't know what exactly was going to happen, whether or not Adam was going to sin, how could he have the redemption of all humanity, the new heavens, new earth, the redemption? How could he have all of that if he already didn't know that Adam was going to fall in sin? Because God knows the future as it is, as contingent. He knows all of the contingent possibilities of the future based upon uh, what he chooses, what mankind chooses. Uh, and so the, you know, all of the all the possible ends are before him, and God also knows what ends he can eliminate through his own actions. Yeah, so one, one thing, what I would have done, uh, yours is perfectly valid to keep him uh, keep him at bay like that. I would have been like, oh, what verse are you referencing? Let, let's We could look at it to see if it actually says the things that you're claiming exists, yeah. something like that. Then it, it puts him on the defensive. And then it, it refo refocusing to the Bible is one of my debate strategies, because That's the Bible... Idea. Yeah. The Bible is their 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 weak point. They don't want to talk about the Bible. He 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 he's looking for gotchas. He's looking to stay away from the text of the Bible. He doesn't want to discuss meaning and context and possible meanings and uh, word choice. He wants to talk these little little rhetorical points. Yeah. And so refocusing to the Bible is is all it's it's the best strategy if the debates if the debate is about the Bible, refocus to the Bible. You'll win every time. I, I, this is one, one place that I think I'm being a little bit too polite uh, in sort of letting him direct the Q&A rather than sort of shooting things back at him. So, yeah. But he is wasting all his time and he's, he not, he's, he's not getting what he wants to get out of it. And, and, and I'm not and I'm not monopolizing his time either. So you can't say that, well, he, he just gave long answers to try to run. Right. And the things you're saying, probably the audience understands. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's. It's not a plan B necessarily. You could have like a contingency plan that's neither plan A nor plan B. And it makes sense. P people can relate to that sort of stuff. And so he doesn't know what to do with that. It's you, you maybe you're able to see it in his face a little bit. He's just like, ah. Uh. Yep. <laughs> so is it the middle? We have, I still don't understand the end, but I like talked about the middle. So God declares the end from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Is the middle just completely unknown to God, or is just all the possibilities known to God? All, the, all of the possibilities are known to God, and God knows how His actions uh, will limit. So this is this is the part where I like to bring up practical examples. I say, well, God had in the Bible had 
a plan for Israel to multiply Israel like the sand of the sea. And multiple times God resolves on destroying Israel and then remaking them through other means. God, God says, I Moses, I could kill them all and then create a new Israel through you. John the Baptist says God could kill all of Israel and make new children of Israel from these stones. God doesn't have to predestine the middle. God is innovative. God is creative. And that's John the Baptist's point that God is not limited by our limitations, how we think God's limited. When we, we put these limitations on God, that's a failure on our part, not God's part. It's it's our lack of imagination, which is the problem. That's what John the Baptist is saying. And so yep. if you refocus to the Bible, and now, now guess what? You got an additional proof text out. They either can try to spend time refuting that proof text or, or they have to let it go, and you just have you, you're able to get in another proof text, another biblical point towards your position, and so it's it's a great thing to do to use for your analogies, for your points, to always pull in Bible verses that are that are not yet relevant. referenced. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it. <laughs> to narrow those possibilities to include his ends. So he has infinite knowledge of what might happen to and not what is going to happen. This point right here, I messed up. Yes, the future is unsettled, yes. Okay. So in that, where he would have infinite knowledge of all the possibilities, yet no knowledge of what actually happens, how is that possible well, where he would have infinite... Okay. So This is, how... this is, this is where I should have said, um, by design, this is the way God wanted it. This is not a This is not a weakness in God. This is god designed creation specifically to be this way and then point back to you know genesis 2 and some of the other things that um god acts contingently and you know acts to genesis 2 um and just made the really hammer home the point here that this is not a mistake this is not a weakness this is a, the design that god created for the universe this is how he wanted it to be and i really didn't hit that hard enough so what rhetorical point do you think you're giving up here what point do you think he gets over on you and how how do you how do you categorize this as a screw up um i i, I kind of let him off the hook a little bit and then like i said i should have said this is this is what God cre designed creation to be. That would have been a more positive and a stronger point to make. And I think he still kind of gets to to hold to. Well, you know, God is not God's not happy with what he's done, or God doesn't like this, or you know, just the he kind of gets to hang on to his position. I really played a little bit more defensive and kind of let him have his side of the fence, and I shouldn't have. So yeah, I I don't I don't see in this interaction specifically him gaining. A rhetorical advantage from the conversation so no but i could have gained a rhetorical advantage by saying this was god's design mm -hmm. so i think that's what i missed or or adding more proof text against his position adding more proof text would have done too yeah because that's really funny because then they don't know what to do they're like this is this is just hurting me i'm just getting hurt <laughs> yeah in unknown but nothing with that well the same way that god doesn't know how large a rock to make such that he can't lift it um, to, to know the future free will actions of a free will agent is, is logically absurd. And so for God to not know logically absurd things is actually divine. Okay. Um, so how does okay. God accomplish his will? What is the mechanism? You got comment on that? On the, what just happened? Yeah. yeah. He, he just was like, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I, yeah. just, I threw him back in the corner and said, it's logically absurd for God to know those things. 
Oh, I don't have a case for God logically knowing those things. Okay, yeah. moving on. <laughs> Uh, one thing I do is I don't like to give in to their framing. Like, I know yep. things about the future. I know I'm going to go to work tomorrow. So what is the content of the knowledge? The knowledge is not the same type of knowledge that they want to ascribe to God, where God has direct access to truth value of propositions right. that are unfalsifiable. My knowledge is is a loose knowledge that will likely come true, and it's judged if I had knowledge right now, ex post facto, after it does happen. No, no one's going to say in two days after I go to work tomorrow, you didn't know you were going to go to work tomorrow. Only a Calvinist in a debate, like normal people. If you're talking to them, you're like, yeah, I knew, uh, what is it today? Tuesday, Tuesday. I knew on Wednesday, I was going to go to work. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Cause that's how normal people use the word knowledge. Yeah. Uh, but when we start talking philosophy and theology, everyone wants to turn to this philosophical definition of knowledge in which God has this ungenerated direct access to truth values of propositions that are unfalsifiable. That's just not what we're familiar with. And so you might, you might run into the non-central fallacy in which people are using obscure definitions of words uh, to rhetorically gain the benefit of what normal people think the word is stating. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to get off into that. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. The way, the, way that, the way that I did it was, I think, a little more simple, a little bit more direct and set him right off his point. So, yeah, well, I'm not criticizing the way you handled yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, I, just... I see what you're saying, and that's that's a good way to approach it. So, yeah, sure. I, I don't like to give into their framing. I, I yeah. want them to defend their framing. And if we're using terms, let's be precise that what they want is fatalistic knowledge, <laughs> knowledge that's unfalsifiable, which is just not how knowledge works. Right. God says, I thought you would return to me, Israel, but you did not. And your treacherous sister, Judah, uh, saw it. God says, I think something and that thing doesn't happen. And I won't do what I thought to do within Jeremiah. So God thinks and God knows things. And those things don't turn out because he's using the normal person definition of knowledge and not not uh, not our theological loaded Lord. David writes, I knew you'd be wearing a black shirt today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Foreknowledge of the future. Yeah, that's it. By which he does it. If he is not actually driving history, then by what means does he accomplish his will? Um, I don't see how it can be reduced to a single mechanism. Um, I'm going to re- refer you back to your own verse, Psalm 115. God does as he pleases. Oh, it's like, uh, yeah, that, there's your opportunity right there. If I were you, I'd just start hammering him. Like, God has all sorts of different mechanisms. Uh, to enforce his will. Jonah wants to run away. And God swallows him with a fish and forces him back on track. It's like God's God's not limited by whatever toolbox you think God's limited by. I, I do provide an example here that I think is a little okay. bit more prophetic. And it's all right. I'll hit play. He accomplishes his will in the way that he is pleased to accomplish it. He may, um, you know, may uh, raise up a, a an individual or a group of people to go do something on his behalf that will accomplish his purpose. He may uh, raise up somebody like Pharaoh uh, to uh, to bring judgment upon him to accomplish his purpose. Um, you, we can look at how John the Baptist got his name. Um, basically, an angel appeared to Zechariah, said, you're going to have the kid. Zechariah said, I'm old. How's this going to happen? An angel says, oh, you doubt me? You're gonna... <laughs> Very good example. Very good. Be uh, mute until this guy, this kid gets named John. So now Zechariah has motivation to, number one, go make a kid, and number two, name him John. So um, that's that's one way. Uh, so there are any number of mechanisms that God might use, many of which we're not informed of in Scripture, uh, to accomplish his purpose. So whenever it comes to God raising up Pharaoh, was Pharaoh raised up first? Again, like none of this has to do with the de- debate proposition, does God predestine all things? It's like just way off topic. 
he, he's uncomfortable with the actual proposition of the debate. I and honestly, again, Marlon, I think should have maybe called him on this and said, "We are far afield from the uh, debate." So I, I guarantee yeah. you that Marlon does not think that they're way off field. Yeah, he, he feels like this is right on target because. <laughs> In the Calvinist mindset, just talking about God doing things is the same thing as talking about God controlling all things. Like, yeah, that is yeah. their mindset. That's what you're dealing with. And that that's what needs to be broken. Yeah. Just and because, it, yeah, go for it. I, and I think that's why I try to stay, I don't want to say I stayed within his frame entirely, but what I try to to answer him in the in the means in which he approaches me so that the reformed person can't say, well, he's just breaking things or he's just, you know, going off topic. It's like, no, I'm responding directly to what he's saying. Um, and so you can't accuse me of, of, you know, being deceptive or manipulative or, or trying to bring other things in. I'm responding directly to what you're saying. And I think that was, that's part of my strategy. It may not work as well orally as it does in writing, but mm -hmm. that's, that's how I approached it. So. And God reacted to the situation. Or did God purposely raise Pharaoh up so that he could use Pharaoh and put judgment on Egypt and then release Israel, which which wasn't? Um, I, I think God was active in bringing about uh, that specific Pharaoh to power specifically for, you know, his uh, his beliefs and his stubbornness, his personality and such that fit into what God had planned for him. So God raised him up and put him in that position. Doesn't mean. Yeah. One thing you could do, which would be really funny, is uh, to say for the sake of the debate. God raises Pharaoh up, puts a protective shield around him, guards him with angels 24-7, and forces him into this position. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I hammer him really hard here in just a second. Keep okay. going. Okay, okay. That God, you know, sort of predestined him from birth to be that. So it was a possibility that it may not have happened. Possibility that, no, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, there are there are things that we, that we are pre-wired to not do, and Pharaoh uh, with his heart and his beliefs about himself was not going to let Israel go. There was just, that was simply not something he was going to do. He may have chosen to keep Israel around for various excuses and various ways for various things, but he wasn't going to let Israel go. So, But out of the infinite possibilities that God could have foreseen, Pharaoh could not have even existed in the first place, correct? Well, wouldn't be. Pharaoh was just was one of the individuals that was in line for the uh, for the throne of of uh of egypt at that time so i mean he existed because he was born i mean it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that it had to from the beginning of time that it had to be that specific individual that was being raised up it was just that was the individual that was uh there and prepared at that time to take power and to be judged but he could have drowned as a child or you know fell off of a, a wagon and, and died as a child that was a possibility that god foresaw correct well, it's only a possibility if you think God is unable to prevent someone from drowning or unable to raise them from the dead, for instance. This is very good. Uh, pointing out that the Calvinists think that God is impotent is, I think, a great strategy. It's like you pretend if God does not control all things, that he's weak and powerless and impotent. That that that's It's either that one or the other. Yeah. And that's his view. Um, if God wants him to be around, God is certainly able to um, heal, protect, raise from the dead, whatever he has to do for that person to be around. So God would have moved through history to make his will be accomplished by actually making it happen. At times. At yeah, times. I, I think God is actually fairly minimal in his interac interaction with history and that he is wise and omniscient and powerful enough that he, you know, touches a particular person, a particular group of people, and, and they move things in the direction he wants to go. He's 
he's the eternal one. So he has, you know, thousands of years to act where we only have, you know, maybe a hundred. So. Um, whenever it comes to the language of like in Genesis six, that God regretted. Can you pause it there a second? Did, did you notice the, uh, the eye roll of irritation there? <laughs> he's, he's not getting what he's wants wants no. and he, he's got five and a half minutes left. And so this has got to be very frustrating for him. He wants these talking points. Let's pretend he got every single talking point he wanted. None of those would prove the debate resolution. Does oh, God predestine yeah. all things? And that's why I say I thought the the debate was pretty much over at the end of my uh, rebuttal. Right now, this he is like never... an inform. It, it's, it's, it smells like an <laughs> informal conversation about random related things with clarifying of views, which is not how people should use debate rebuttal time. Debate yep. rebuttal time is used to take the weak points in the other person's position and exploit them publicly uh, so that you your, their, your audience understands in which ways that their position is deficient. That This, this is your time. They're not going to know it by just watching the back and forth five minutes at a time. They're not going to pick up as quickly and as directly as rebuttal time when you're staring them in the face, asking them a question, and they refuse to answer. That that's that's your time. Did God make a mistake? Is that what he felt whenever it says he regretted? Um, I don't think that God made a mistake. I think that um, God is God is looking at the. Um, oh, was that your phone? Okay, sorry, I was distracted for a moment. Um, I think God is looking at how mankind has re has reacted to God and is, is regretting having created these beings that are acting in the way that they are. So it's not that God made a mistake, it's that man made a mistake, but God's kind of saying, I don't know, why did I even bother to do this? Is it your understanding that God would not predestine events that would be sin? No. So God would not <laughs> predestine people to do a thing that would be considered sinful, correct? If that fit God's um, purpose and plan, sure, God could predestine them to do that. I mean, yeah. Hold it. In <laughs> no, fact, that's what so. happened with with. He's just not getting it. It was rhetorical. Like, like, what's he going to do with that information? It can't be anything related to the debate topic. No, for sure. And the he's trying to get me to do something that other Arminians, whoever, have done to him to say, well, God would never predestine sin. Um, you know, trying to make the character of God argument. And I'm like, well, this isn't about the character of God. And so I'll grant you that one. And yeah. that, that whole line of argument just went right out the window. So so what he wants to do is get you in a trap. Like, oh, yeah. God would never predestine sin. He would say, but look at these, the Syrians doing these sinful things. Ha, so since you deny this point about the Bible that I could clearly get a get you, got you on, I win the debate because clearly you're denying this particular passage. Therefore yep. the other things I say about the Bible is true. And the other things you say about the Bible is false. Yep. And I, I, I threw that entire argument off the window just by answering the way that I did. Yes. And he was not a, like, he's asking questions that he doesn't know the answer to. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think he thought he knew the answer to this one. He did, but he so, did, which is, yeah. Which is why answering in unexpected ways during a debate, ways that they haven't anticipated or planned for, it it really it, it creates like a, a struck dumb moment. Like uh, back back when uh, Warcraft was a thing, Warcraft two, like your your peasants would go into the mine and pull the money out of the mine. But as soon as the mine exploded, it was depleted. 
all the peasants would stand around struck dumb. They didn't know what to do anymore. That that's that's what's happening in here. It's like he, he has no guidance anymore. Like like it, it's gone up in smoke. He's that peasant. Like more work yes. <laughs> sitting around. What do I do? Yeah, struck dumb is what I say. It's real funny. Yeah, uh, with Christ, he basically predestined by using their uh, sort of cultural uh, proclivities to uh, to use them to uh, crucify Christ. So yeah, that was he predestined them through using their own stuff to to crucify Christ. So right. So whenever it comes to the will of God, how would you define? As basically as possible in time we have what the will of god is so a really bad debate strategy is to use your rebuttal time to get points to point out in in your final conclusion like if the audience isn't tracking these things and if you're not on an active strategy of gaining wins small wins throughout the cross-examination the fact that you've gained talking points during their conclusion it it doesn't help you that much. They're they're probably tuning out. Like I think a normal audience member at this point would be like, um, I I don't see where this is going. I don't see anyone winning. I I don't see you you don't feel anything from this yeah. interaction because there's no. I I am playing a little bit of rope a dope here. So, but yes, yeah, you're not you're not doing terrible again. Uh, you and you're thwarting him at a, at his maneuvering. How do we know the will of God? How do we know the will of God? Um, well, James says if anybody is uh, anybody needs guidance, we can pray and we can ask for guidance from God. Um, we can read the scriptures to see what uh, see what God's will is for us. Um, you know, we, uh, prayer. And I, I guess I use James already, but you know, uh, so I'm, I'm not exactly sure how the. The scope of the question seems a bit large to sort of answer in this format. That there are any number of ways. Yeah, like the question doesn't seem relevant to the debate topic. Yeah, I probably <laughs> should have said that too. <laughs> yeah, it's like this. Uh, I'm not sure how my answer either way would affect our debate resolution, but I'll I answer. I think he's trying to figure out if I'm a charismatic or not, so he can get me on. Um, on being a charismatic. He's got like three and a half minutes. Like I yeah. at this point, maybe maybe his notes are all burned up maybe maybe all his talking points since there are no go he has to make things up on the fly i don't know maybe if we zoom into his glasses we could see if he has a little spreadsheet of questions <laughs> to see see if it's like i don't yeah. like that meme where where the first joke doesn't land and they're like tell a different joke and all the jokes are related to the first joke and it's like right. ah i got nothing that left was, that's really what it felt like yeah yeah i'll just start shooting into the dark it's uh one of the you, you could tell that this guy hasn't necessarily interacted with any open theists to to get a good sense of how open theists are going to react to various questions with any consistency and so it's he he may have interacted like with like one or two open theists in his time but if you're interacting with a uh thomas ord open theist or or, or gregory boyd open theist it's going to be different than like a bob and open theist it, it's, it's going to be a completely different interaction so he doesn't seem to have the scope of knowledge to For be sure. asking questions in this cross exam. Yep. Communicates his will to us. Um, and so we have to work to perceive those things. So is it God's will, as far as we're aware, to murder an innocent man? Is it well, it was it was God's will to 
turn Christ over to evil men to do what they would do. Okay, so, um, you know, that, that was the extent of, of God's intent. God, and again, Christ went willingly, so it wasn't as though, you know, Jesus was uh, dragged to these evil men to have them do it. Jesus willingly gave up his own life. Uh, but in, in, I guess in the sense that, you know, Jesus worked to set himself up to do those things that Jesus is. Yeah. So one thing uh, you could do, if, if you do present evidence, like, like I do in some of my debates, like, yeah, Jesus thought the cross wasn't uh, a necessity. Jesus thought the cross could be subverted. Like times like this, when he's asking you about these things, oh, was this according to the will of God? Say, yeah, it's part of his plan. But remember that the cross in Jesus's mind didn't have to occur. It could be thwarted. It's not like God planning this and, and bringing it to fruition was a fated predestined event. Jesus thought it could be thwarted. Yeah. Yeah. So, so recalls like, I, uh, yeah, I, I just not sure how well that would play with the reformed audience, but yeah, <laughs> but it is, it is, it is really funny because in the comments, in the comments, they will go crazy. They're like, yeah. what did he just say? And, and uh, they get real triggered and very angry. And then they'll make little clips and they'll be like, open theist says this thing that we think is reprehensible. Uh, don't we all agree it's so reprehensible? Because it's reprehensible to us, it must be wrong. We don't even have to bother refuting it. No. So. Is God sure? So well, then I want to get back to the possibilities. <laughs> so whenever we go back to creation and all of history is just multiple possibilities within the mind of God, all history could be completely different. The Bible could be completely different. Could be completely different. Sure, if Adam hadn't sinned, yeah, it would be very different. <laughs> so I go back again. What was God's purpose in creating the universe and Adam. It's like he didn't listen to your original answer. He okay, didn't. I go back to the creation story. Um, man was to be given dominion over the earth. One thing that's really funny to do is if someone's debated, uh, like Matt Slick, he's debated Leighton Flowers on a lot of different issues. If you're in a debate with someone and you control the questions and they're trying to make a certain point, you could ask them to tell you how Leighton Flowers would respond to that argument. <laughs> because then you're forcing them not only to put themselves in the shoes of their opponent who they don't agree with, but you're forcing them to give the counter argument to the thing that they're trying to claim. Yeah. And it, it shows if they have intellectual integrity and honesty. And if they, one, one thing that happens with Calvinistic debates is you're like, you'll make a point that they can't refute. And uh, so they drop or they run away, or sometimes they'll even admit that they couldn't, can't refute that. And then you'll talk to them the next day. And it's like the prior conversation never happened. Oh yeah. And I, it's like, yeah, it, it's like, you're making the same point. It's like, it, it didn't just didn't, it did not mentally register to you that your point was a bad point. It's like, wh what's going on here? It's, did you reset overnight? You just wiped your memory and it's ideological capture. They they got the talking points, and their talking points work fairly consistently with the people that they interact with, and so they can't process the, the times that it doesn't, and so they just have to keep on going on the script. They yep. have to pretend that that uh, that misalignment in the script doesn't exist, or else their worldview is shattered. Their worldview yep. has a mistake. Mm -hmm. 
earth and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then that dominion was, was at least we have an example of how that dominion is fulfilled in Genesis 2.19, where God calls the animals before. So Khan asks, watching from the beginning, you can make the argument if God declared predestined everything, then why does God only sometimes point out when he's doing something and not every time? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, what is it in uh, uh, Malachi? Is it Malachi where God says, uh, uh, an evil does not befall a city without the Lord first declaring it to his prophets. And it's like God, it, God's not doing everything. The things that God does, God specifically states he does so that the people know that God's doing those things rather than just happenstance, rather than someone else doing those things. Yes, the reason God tells people is so that people can differentiate when God's acting and when God's not acting. And it's definitely an argument against Calvinism. And I bring it up in my Isaiah debate. Yeah, it's 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 okay to an extent, but it's kind of becomes an argument from silence that says, well, just because God didn't tell us doesn't mean that He isn't doing it. But you're right. It's it's. Uh, but the passage that I gave says that yeah. a disaster does not befall a city without the Lord first declaring it to His prophets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny. For Adam and whatever um, God calls him before, and so to see what Adam would call them and whatever Adam called it, that was its name. And so God has, has created the universe so that uh, so that He might see what what creative things we might do with it. This is what theologians call the creative mandate. So then if if Adam had never sinned, then God could have never been glorified in the redemption of people through Christ and been shown his glory in the justice that he bestows on the wicked. That would have never happened. Well, God would have been glorified in um, Adam serving God and rejecting the um, the uh, the temptations of the devil. So God would have been glorified in a different way. So God is simply reacting <laughs> he doesn't to know what to mankind do. does. Everything is based on you know, contingency plans based on what man does. Would you say, who would you say is really in control of the universe and history then? Is it is man doing his thing and then God doing, reacting to it or who's guiding history? Well, I, I think it's you sort of mischaracterized my position here because, uh, well, I don't know if I said it, but I had intended to say it, that um, God is both acting both proactively and reactively in, in creation. So God is proactively bringing about his purposes, working through people, and by the same time, watching what uh, people, individuals, and nations do. And, and that's a good answer to it. And so it's like he doesn't know what to do with that answer. Bonding to yeah. those things. He got lucky because he ran out of time. <laughs> I, I think he ran out of substance. It's like he's just shooting in the dark is what's happening. <laughs> Well, I, and I, I blunted a lot of his lines of argument by answering in ways that he didn't want me to answer. So. Right. And so how long is, like, we're at an hour 40 right now. Um, how long is his ending speech? Let's take a look at that. Like five minutes? Yeah, it's five-minute closing. Okay. Let's, let's switch to his closing. We'll skip your cross-examination, or we could be here all night. And yeah. we'll see how he wraps up the material that he has just gathered and his interactions, how he summarizes it. As soon as you begin to speak. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Marlon, for letting me back on here. This is my fourth debate that I've been able to do on this platform. Hey, this is still at 1.25 speed, and it sounds like he's talking normal. So talking slow is not a good quality for a debate. You need some sort of speed. So you could get more things out within your limited time frame. Yep. Thank you so much, Michael, for being a great opponent, for making this a lively debate to give you, the audience, something to think about. And thank you for all of you for watching.
uh, like I said, you could be watching something else, something really stupid, yet here you are. Watching. Okay, so I, I'm not sure what he's doing with this. It's like thanking the audience. He uses 30 seconds to thank the audience. You could probably do that after. There, there, there might be a there time. Be. <laughs> and so it's like this, it's not a good time to do this. And so you have to wonder what his goal is with this. Is he trying to flatter the audience so that the audience like takes his position better before he presents his argument? Does he think that this is normal to do in debates? What's the mindset? Watching a couple guys on the internet argue about theology. So just thank you for everybody. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Well, I would hope that after this whole discussion that it would be obvious that was 40 seconds out of a five five minute outro biblical argument is coming from the plain scriptures interpreting the unclear there are definite statements that god meant something for a purpose not used it god meant something declaring the end from the beginning doing whatever he pleases and whether or not this is the exact language you would like to show that god is sovereign it's clear what the message is that's being conveyed from the scriptures that God is in control. So it's going to be constant gaslighting. Okay. Repeat my key points, say what those things mean and keep reinforcing it. (laughs) Right. It's this, this is theological gaslighting is what's going on here. If I claim the same thing over and over, like Calvinists will do this often. They'll they'll say, Oh, I'm so scripturally based. So look, I read AW pink. And you read A.W. Pink, and there's a whole page of text, and you look, look, there's some parentheses, and it has a Bible verse in parentheses that apparently uh, means whatever he claims in the text. Whereas in reality, you turn to any of those references, it has nothing to do with anything he's claiming. They're just random, absurd references. But then you get a claim, oh, I'm so biblical. I read A.W. Pink. It's like... Well, the confessions are the same way. The confessions make claims and then put proof text in parentheses. It's like... I don't think that's a good way to make a confession, but okay. Yeah. Uh, Calvin was better than Augustine on this point. Yeah. Uh, Calvin was actually a little frustrated with Augustine because Augustine loved to spiritualize the text. And he was like, what is this guy spiritualizing everything? And Calvin would actually like look at texts and just like parse them out and interpret them and try to see what they're saying. Then he dismissed the text afterwards. Um, but uh, he's he's actually a better exegete than, than Augustine ever oh, was. For sure, yeah. God's will is not thwarted. Just like Nebuchadnezzar said, who is there that can stay his hand? Who is there that can thwart his will? The scriptures are not making a God that is surprised by things or is limited. So he's attempting to project confidence and confidence is a good strategy, but I I don't feel like this man is radiating confidence it doesn't feel like that it feels very sketchy and it almost feels fake in a way so i don't know how many times he's practiced this whether he's having mental conflicts as he's reciting this whether he believes this fully it's not clear because it's not coming out in his body language it's not signaling to me someone who tries to look at people's body language that he fully believes the things that he's claiming human actions and having to react to it based on his his smiles look like planted like how they don't look genuine i I, well i think he's he's really thinking through his words because he doesn't want to step into any of the things that i specifically refuted 
And so he's really having to, in order to gaslight properly, you've got to carefully step around the landmines that I've placed along the way. So, and I think that's kind of what he's doing in the back of his head. He's trying to um, avoid the things that I've specifically touched on already. So, yeah, I, I think you're seeing like a little hint of like arrogance or like uh, he wants to say, yeah, we'll he wants that. to position himself in. Oh, I'm better than him. I believe the Bible. He's he's gonna he's gonna go basically ad hominem on me pretty quickly here for being an open theist. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Half smile, half smile. It's not a. It doesn't feel like a genuine smile. No, no. you're talking to someone. They do the smile to you. It's like yeah, you you might they're be skimming, buddy. Possible futures. He's been in all reality. He's as limited as we would be. Maybe a, a little less limited, and where he could see many more possibilities than us. But in our reality, you and I can think of all kinds of possibilities that can happen tomorrow. But if that's what we're, we're living God to is mere possibilities and acting on contingencies, that, that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible to me. The God of the Bible. So like his shrugs seem very stiff. Mm -hmm. Like are like, they yeah. practiced or, or are you, is it, is it I, a genuine? I, I think he's, he's very nervously doing this because he knows he has not made his case at, at any point. And, right, uh, it's prescripted, yeah. but he's he he doesn't, wants to portray confidence, it. but he's not confident. He doesn't believe it. Yeah, gives prophecy. He says this is going to happen, and really, honestly, think to yourself how many things are happening in any given second of the world and the universe. How any of those little things could change? How many decisions that you have made in one day that were affected by outside influence and affected by things you may not even notice, things all around you, and how many decisions you may have affected, and on and on it goes. It, this isn't just happenstance and God happened. So uh, I, I think he brought it up in his opening, but this is an actual thing that open theists need to consider. If there are certain events that are predestined, how many variables that are related also need to be controlled or predestined? It's, it's a good thought experiment, but... Uh, I don't think he does a good job of arguing that that's a make or break for his case. Yeah. I, one thing that I had in my notes that I don't think I brought out was that there's a difference between what I call strong and weak predestination that um, I can set this thing in motion. And then I know that no matter what events take place, that this event is going to occur as a result of me setting this in motion. And I don't have to control everything along the way. I would call that weak predestination where he believes that unless God predestines every little thing that happens along the way, we can't get from A to B uh, with any certainty. And so we must have strong predestination of and predestination of all things and not having particular events predestined because God sets them in motion. So. Yeah, there's a very good article that I republished on God is Open in which there's an open theist talking about the different strengths of prophecy. Like uh, if the, a very specific prophecy would be like you pointed out that this particular thing is going to happen at uh, 7.15 a.m. on January the 13th and 2000. Like that's very strong. Very loose is the Savior will be born in Bethlehem, right? And yes. so one one is... A lot like the Bible doesn't make the first category of claims. It's it's always very loose with very wide interpretation. Mm -hmm. And often when you see the fulfillment, they're fulfilled very loosely. Like the Bible says that Israel's going to be enslaved 300 years and oppressed. Uh, they're in Egypt for 315 years. Eh, close enough. 
you know, things like that. What, when, how, how long of that were they actually oppressed? About 80 years. And it was close enough. You could kind of like lump them together. And uh, close enough works often within the Bible. And so the specificity of the actual prophecy is something to look at to see if God predestines all things. And then the specificity in which things are fulfilled. Like Nebuchadnezzar is going to trample all the streets of Tyre, uh, tear them down and uh, get wages for all his men and have this massive success. And they're like, well, he was just the first wave. And then these other waves came and then Alexander was the completed wave. It's like, that's if, if that's your standard of prophecy interpretation, it's like anything goes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the one that, that uh, Calvin just like to throw at us is the prophecy of Peter. Um, denying christ but even in that it's not specific it's just three times it's not to whom it's not where it's going to happen it's not when it's going to happen it's just sometime between now and dawn he's going to deny him three times and really all he, jesus needs to know at that point is that peter's not going to get away without being challenged three times so what's really funny is i just had a conversation with a calvinist on this yeah on like facebook i don't know if i told this story yet but it was so funny i pointed out that if you look at the various gospels, they don't agree in the detail how many rooster crows there's going to be, at what point the denial is going to happen. Um, these types of things, they don't line up, which suggests for normal people with normal reading comprehension that the details aren't really what's important about the story. Uh, but the fact of the, the crowing and the denials, that's what's at issue. If, if, the, if the details between the gospels contradict each other, you can't claim it as a de facto prophecy fulfillment in a very detailed sense. The details don't light up. They right. contradict. Yep. And so then he got mad at me and said, oh, oh, you believe there's errors in the Bible. No, I didn't. That, those are your words. You think there's errors in the Bible. I'm just saying that the details of the prophecy are not important in the prophecy. The thrust of the prophecy is what counts for any particular prophecy. Yep. And and they, they're, they're willing, they've shown themselves willing to accept almost any type of prophecy fulfillment for any prophecy. It's just the things that they think were fulfilled in detail. Then, then they start claiming that all the prophecy is fulfilled in detail, even though they've shown themselves willing to accept anything. Yeah. Wanting to use things for his benefit. Uh, I find, and this is, this is a debate. This is how debates go. Nothing is meant to be offensive. It's meant to be honest. And plain, plainly, I find that my opponent's arguments and some of his questioning were in the absurd level. And I hope you saw that whenever it comes to God being restricted by his own will. It's, it's an absurd question. It's illogical that Jesus was merely... So I, I think he genuinely believes that, but he's still not radiating confidence. And yeah. the problem is that like normal people don't think this way. Like God is yeah. overthrown if if the lawyers uh, who God willed for the lawyers to be baptized, the scribes, and they don't get baptized. Now God's overthrown because his will's not done. Normal people don't think like this. He's referring to, um, I asked him whether God's uh, knowledge uh, was eternal or whether there was a time that God contemplated what he was going to create. And he basically said God didn't contemplate it just. God knew always what he was going to create. And the point that I was making was, well, if God's, if God infallibly knows that, that he is going to create and he's going to do all of these things, then God is constrained by his memory. He's, he's God basically is um, forced by his knowledge to do what he knows he's going to do. He can't 
do anything else. And I was making a point that if that's what you believe, then God is effectively impotent and, and is a prisoner of his own knowledge. Right. And in, he, did, he didn't like that at all, but he didn't know how to respond to it. So In classical theism, including classical Arminianism, the future is unfalsifiable in God's knowledge. God's just as subject to fate as everything else. God doesn't have volition or free will. Nope. God just acts as one of the puppets within the overall system. Yep. And, and he, he that's that's what he's specifically referring to here. So and that's why I, I just, I'm absurd. I'm, I'm just you know, being grumpy about it because he didn't like the fact that it's true. So, so one really funny part of the Will Duffy, Matt Slick debate, I don't know if you ever watched that, but when Will Duffy's asking Matt Slick if God could add one raindrop to one storm and Matt Slick, because Matt Slick will do anything to get out of answering a question that looks unfavorable, he like, he just pretends like he doesn't know what the question's about. And Will Duffy yeah. has to ask him like, five to ten times and it's just so awkward and will duffy's like my kid can answer this like yeah. like it's it's humiliating to him but uh he's of the mindset never give an inch into the debate never make a statement that will reflect negatively as if you've lost and because that's his value set it's very easy to exploit mm -hmm. he does the same um, thing with primary and secondary means during my right which so. i don't think that you I didn't handle it well. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't handle it as well as I could have. Yeah, right. Um, sure. And so that—that's the thing that we're talking about as well. About again, again, all of this is irrelevant to the overall question. I like I said, if I would have phrased the question, "Did God predestine the confusion of the Corinthians?" That would have bypassed all of it because I could have come back to that question. It doesn't matter whether primary, secondary means any of this. Did God predestine it? And if I could have just focused on that question. Um, that the whole primary secondary thing would have would have been absurd. So, yeah, that was that was my mistake. Yeah, the bear hoping that the, the Pharisees would do what he wanted to, that the Jews would do certain things, that Pilate would do it, just kind of trying to get things to go where he would go. It might be nervousness, but he's like jittery. It, mm -hmm. well, it's like he did he did not like the fact that um, you know, that it's possible that God could have predestined through sort of uh, manipulating or interacting with people in such a way that they're going to respond in a particular way. He didn't, he didn't like that. And you can see that here that he still doesn't like it. So, so I, I think that this closing represents the fact that like he's thrown for the loop about a lot of the interaction. And so all of his pre-planned conclusions probably doesn't, doesn't Good flow. Work. So he, he has to shoot from the hip here and it, it's not, his body language is not singing with the things he's saying. Yeah. Not really knowing for sure that they would go that way. There was that possibility in God's mind that it could have gone a billion other different ways. But I think the scripture is absolutely clear. What the writers have conveyed is that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. And yes, it is an active word. It is an active verb. Works, working. And that has been true since the beginning. Uh, Enoch says, God will kill all things on earth. Then the next verse says, God will save his righteous. Like, all things is limited by context. So it's yeah. like, mm -hmm. what does the context say? Yeah. God does declare the beginning from the end and works all things, all things. Not just the big things, every molecule, according to the counsel of his will and to his purpose. So... I, I hope that this was very informative. And so one thing I like to do is point out where these phrases are used of people. Like uh, 
Luke Luke says that Christians have perfect knowledge from the beginning. King David is said to know all things. Uh, the Prince of Tyr knows all the secrets of the heart. Things like this. Like this is just normal language used about people. So to when it's applied to God to give it some super spiritual theological meaning that is loaded with his presuppositions, it's like completely fallacious. He doesn't read anything else like this, only his statements that he really needs to mean what he wants them to mean in order to be proof text for his position. And quite honestly, the refutation of position is just to complete the sentence, read verse 12. It's like he breaks all things so that we would be the, fo- the first to right. hope would be. To re- it's like, no, he's not working all things, all things generally. He's working all things related to those who have first hope would obtain, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's another thing. It's like uh, when they, they claim, oh, God does this or thinks that or knows this. Ask, what's the mechanism? By what means does God know this? Yeah. By what means does this event that God foresaid would happen, by what means does it occur? Mm-hmm. And often the mechanism will refute the point that they're trying to make. That's eternal true. predestination yeah. of all things, exhaustive foreknowledge from time eternal. A lot of times that's, that's not what the context states is the mechanism for these things. So that's why I love refocusing to the Bible. Mm-hmm. I'll to you, and I hope that Michael had as good a time as I did and that we both had a good experience with this. Once again, I appreciate him. I appreciate his arguments. I think he did a fantastic job. So uh, with that, I'll yield my time and yield it over to Michael. Okay, so he spends the first 30 seconds uh, thanking the audience. Um, There's sporadic thanking the audience and and complimenting the audience throughout. And then he turns over 30 seconds. Like he just... he. This this threw him for a loop. This was all off the cuff, shooting from the hip. He wasn't expecting any of this. Whatever he had prepared, he wasn't able to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're at about two hours, but I think uh, we did a pretty decent review of uh, Broski. So it, it's interesting to see your interactions and, and how you acted and behaved and were able to thwart some of his his power plays and uh, his frustrations. So I, I think this is a good interaction and hopefully uh, you enjoyed our interaction tonight. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I like doing these things just to kind of go back and, and you know, how, what did he do and how did it respond and what could I have done better? I and mean, these are all good uh, sort of educational things to talk through. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I was talking about today. There was a guy who went to prison and like he, he played golf in his mind. Right. Like, so he, he just visualized his body playing golf over and over. It might've been like something else like pool or baseball, whatever it was. But when he, when he got out of prison, because he spent all that time visualizing his body moments, movements and emotions, he was able to play a lot better the sport that he visualized doing when he was in a space where he couldn't do it. And so running thought experience, like if you're having that conversation in the shower, Oh, I should have said this. I should have done this. Those types of things will train your body how to react in similar scenarios. And they're very helpful for for creating future interactions that are going to be fruitful. They're going to help you for those future times to know what to say and do. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, the self-reflection, I think, is a very valuable tool. Yep, I agree. Yep. Yeah, and thank you for uh, taking the time to do this with me. It's uh, good to to hear from you and to hear from, you know, people that are in your audience to make comments, things like that. It's, It's all good. Good feedback. Yeah. Thanks for coming tonight. We'll end there. If people have questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thanks for watching.